You're listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much, dear Lord, for this time of the year, what it means, Lord, as we praise you. Lord Jesus, we love you and Part of that song talks about our weaknesses, our failures. And Lord, you're no stranger to those. The Bible said that you were tempted in every way as men, as man yet without sin. You know what it is to live in this fleshly human body, dear Lord, to struggle, and we praise you for that. We ask you now to be with us, Lord, even as we've praised and worshiped through song, may we do so in your word. And Lord, help me to be a vessel you can use today. Forgive me, cleanse me, Lord, of any thought, deed, or word. Let me be something that you can use today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can remain standing. I want you to remain standing for a moment. Thank you so much, praise team. And thank you, Jana, today being back with us. It's good to see her here today. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, we'll begin at verse 18. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. I've I've titled this message today, A Unique Man. You know, uh, the last four weeks, I think at least four weeks, Reggie has been preaching and teaching and talking to us and done an excellent job about what uh, this time of the year can do to our emotions, how it can affect us, depression, A lot of times we've lost a loved one. A lot of times we've gone through some kind of painful relationship or an experience. A lot of times we're dealing with just some kind of loss or sometimes it's just a time we deal with depression, anxiety. And and I want to encourage you, if you've not been here for that series, go back, listen to those messages because God can use them to speak to your heart. But today we're going to take a turn and we're going to look today at a unique man In fact, I would say this. I would be so bold to say this. We've seen a man in a desert build a a boat 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall in the middle of a desert. We've seen a man called to leave his father, his kindred, and his people and go to a land that God would show him. We know those as Noah who built an ark, Abraham who was called to be the father of of a line of people. We could go through the Old Testament. We could look at men like Reggie talked about, uh, Elijah, and that that stand that he took there on Mount Carmel when he called down fire from heaven. We could look at uh, Moses, who led a people out of Egypt. We could look at a lot of great men and women. But I'm going to be so bold as to say this. The man that I'm talking about today, I believe perhaps could be the greatest man in all the scripture. Because what he, was rec- what he was called to do. And so I want us to look today at the earthly dad. I want us to look at Joseph. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 18, it says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, before they consummated the marriage, before there was any sexual act at all between them, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. 
because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly, privately. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name, let's say it together, Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin shall be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you and we love you. We pray, God, you guide this time of the service, and we give you the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. You know, uh, parenting is not an easy task, is it? I mean, when you think about raising kids, Sheila and I had the opportunity this past week, we went to the Ozarks, we went to Branson, it was our first time there to view some of the shows and to be there. And the very first morning we were eating breakfast, I looked and there was a man reading his Bible in this beautiful place and kind of looks over this unbelievable scene and as I watched him reading his Bible at a certain point I, I couldn't help it I said what do you read and he began to talk we began to talk back and forth and Sheila could tell that I wanted to spend a few moments talking to him because I felt God wanted me to speak to him and so finally I went over introduced myself we sat there for a while talking to him and as we began to talk he began to tear up he was an engineer from Dallas and he said I've got five children he said they're all homeschooled he said, my youngest son now lives in Atlanta. My oldest son lives in Atlanta. And as he teared up, he began to say, I'm worried about him. And man, I just began to counsel and speak to him and encourage him and felt like God was able to use me to kind of pour into his life. But when I walked away from that, I thought, you know, he's right. It's not easy to parent. And for every parent in this room, you know what I'm getting ready to say. I want you to listen. Every parent goes through this discussion. What if and who? You want to guess what I'm talking about? What if we die and who will raise our children? It's the greatest fear of being a parent. And every one of us have gone through that because you toy around, you play around, you think to yourself, you know, if something happened to us, a husband and a wife, you'll be sitting there, you'll be talking, uh, maybe you're traveling on an airplane. Sheila and I traveled a lot of it, a lot. We flew all over the world. There were times that Sheila, when her dad died, we were in Zimbabwe. She was flying back to the States, separated about three weeks. There are times that every parent weighs and thinks through if something happens to us, both of us together, who would we want to raise our children? Let me ask you something. You ever thought God went through that? Here God looks across the spans, the tapestry of history. 
And we have no difficulty when we talk about Mary, but we really don't understand and grasp this man by the name of Joseph. God, a sovereign God, is looking across creation and he's looking for one man to be the earthly father of his son, to guide him, to nurture him, to protect him, protect him, provide for him, and bring him to the age by which he would carry out the messianic title, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God saves his people. I, I wrote this down. I thought how hard it might be in our day. A day when society and an American Western culture has emasculated man, who it's become more and more difficult to raise up boys in our day. James Dobson wrote a book called Bringing Up Boys, and he said it's very difficult today in our Western society to bring up boys in the admonition and the training of the, of the Lord, and more so to teach them what it means to be a man. There seems to be a war today on masculinity as if it's something that we should be ashamed of. Men are under attack. And I, I wrote this down with the growing attack on masculinity. I'm fearful as I'm watching my sons and grandsons now growing up and now raising their own boys. I went on to say today, I wrote this down today, there's a clashing of the definition of a man is outlined by the scripture and the vast majority of cultures in our world and most cultures of our world, such as where we lived in Zimbabwe among the Shona people, the reality is, is there's a rite of passage that you take a boy and make him a man. And men are involved in that. And somehow we've kind of lost that. But here we catch the glimpse of a man. A man chosen by God to be the earthly father of Jesus. Now, background we, know very, background we know very little about Joseph. He was from the tribe of Judah. The Messianic tie. He, he was out of the lineage of David. He was a common carpenter. Now, let me explain. He's in the construction business. Uh, Philip uh, is in the construction business. Bi Philip could build... Uh, he can build furniture. He can build cabinets, upper, upper line cabinets. He's a, he's a master at his trade. In fact, his father did that. And I'm sure if you ask Philip, whose dad died in his 80s, I'm sure Philip would tell you that my dad was a man's man. And this was in a day where there was no electricity, no modern day tools. He was blue collar. Joseph was blue collar, dirt under his nails, a man's man. In fact, cardiologists say this about Jesus when they study the crucifixion. They say that what Jesus went through was so taxing physically that he had to have been in an unbelievable condition. Let me tell you why he was in an unbelievable condition. Because he had spent his life making a living with his hands. So he's a man's man. And cardiologists say that he was a unique, Jesus was a unique man, but he probably reflected the profession of his dad. Amy, our oldest daughter, who's a dentist, went through uh, gross anatomy. And she talks about her cadaver. 
Amy said she would go up, and sometimes, I don't know about you, but this is kind of eerie to me, but she would go up there at the medical school in gross anatomy, and she would have to be tested on her cadaver. And so what would happen? She said some night she would go by herself because it was easier to study. She said you walk into this room, you cut the lights on in the dead of night, and you hit that button, and of course uh, Tamara's gone through this, probably told you stories of her cadaver. And all of a sudden your cadaver comes up out of this formaldehyde and it's sitting there on this table and then you begin to, you've opened this cadaver up along with other students, but sometimes you're going through all of the possibilities as the questions are going to be fired at you in an exam or in a testing. But Amy at times would cry over her cadaver. She said, Dad, my cadaver was a man. He was in his 60s. She said he was a man's man. Said his skin was taut and his, his, it was tanned. She said you can see the muscles in him. She said I would look at some people who had cadavers that looked you know, overweight and, and obese and cutting through the fat. She said there was no fat in the cadaver that I had. And she said I thank God. She would say over and over again, sometimes through tears, she'd say, Dad, he was a man's man. A man who had given his life to the medical school to study after he was dead and gone. Jesus comes from a relatively normal, functional, common, hard-working, blue-collar family. Did you know Jesus had siblings? He had four brothers. In fact, I wrote their, uh, I put their names down just so I wouldn't forget them. James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. Did you know he had sisters? He had at least two sisters, but they're unnamed in the Scripture. I thought to myself, boy, this would have been a difficult... Could you imagine being the younger brother or sister of Jesus? Can you imagine Joseph and Mary saying, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? Imagine growing up in that environment, but, but it gives you a little bit of the feeling of this man by the name of Joseph. But look at his character. Alex, Alexander McLaren said this. He said, Matthew's account of the nativity sets Joseph in the foreground. His pain and hesitation, his consideration for Mary, the divine communication to him and his obedience to it, embarrassing as his position must have been. McLaren believes that Luke's account was influenced, the Gospel of Luke was influenced by Mary, but that Matthew's account was influenced by Joseph. The only thing I would have to disagree is that we know that Joseph was dead by the time Jesus began his ministry. It's almost for certain. But the Bible gives us a clue into the integrity and the character of this man, Joseph. And let me say something here to blended families. You know, a lot of times the church looks down, people look down on blended families. Has it ever occurred to us that Mary and Joseph were a blended family? I mean, think about it. Do you know what God said? He said, Joseph, I need you to raise somebody else's kid. I need you to be a dad. I need you to be a parent to somebody else's child. And Joseph, it's mine. This was a blended family. And I think that's encouraging today when divorce and single parents and 
people eventually find happiness and begin to rebuild and put a family together, I want to encourage you by saying that God's family is a blended family. Joseph was called to raise to be a parent to somebody else's child. That's fascinating to me. Real quickly, three things about his character. Joseph's character. First of all, if you read verse 19, it said that he was, uh, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Now Mary is discovered to be pregnant. And the Bible says because Joseph was a righteous man, he was a just man. Dikaios in the Greek, it means upright, it means virtuous, it means moral, it means a man who's blameless. He's innocent, he obeys the, he obeys the law. He's a righteous, godly, good man. But I thought to myself, what does that mean in our day? What does it mean to be a righteous man in our day? Does it mean that he goes to church occasionally? Is that a righteous man? Does it mean that every once in a while he takes his Bible out of the back dash of the car and carries it into the house and happens to stumble over a couple of passages of Scripture? Does it mean that he prays at Cracker Barrel when he sits down with his family and every once in a while his children will see him pray? You know what Andy Stanley said about his dad, Charles Stanley? He said, my most vivid memory of my dad was going by his room and seeing Charles Stanley. He said, it was always the case. He said, I saw my dad on his knees praying. What's a righteous man? Is a righteous man who occasionally attends church, occasionally reads his Bible, occasionally spends a moment in prayer. What does a righteous man look like? And especially to kids when they're growing up. I'm going to tell you folks, I only want one thing when I die. And I've seen it more than anyone in this room. I want one day when my children are standing at the coffin and they are about to escort my wife, my children, and my grandchildren out of the, out of the parlor, I want my children and my grandchildren to be able to say he was one of the most righteous, most godly men I ever knew. And for every dad and mom, every parent in this room, you ought to live the kind of life that when you die, your children, your grandchildren will look in that coffin right before they close it and say, there's never been a man like that man. He was a godly, righteous, good man. Mom, listen to me. That means you don't flirt around. Dad, that doesn't mean you flirt around. That means you're committed and dedicated to Christ to your wife, to your husband, and to your children above all else. Joseph was a godly, righteous, good man. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the heroes of the faith. Well, when you read those, they're flawed. Sheila and I went to Branson, and we got to see the, the play, um, the musical Samson. It is unbelievable. David... And Deidre had worked it out. David's dad, uh, Ty Harwell, uh, has been over 20 years managing supervisor. He's one of the key figures that takes all of that production and handles all of the animals. And the animals are unbelievable. They had camels and horses, pigs. They had goats and sheep. They had, they had horses that came down through the aisle. They're right down past us going up onto the stage. It was unbelievable production. And by the end of it, Sheila and I, we were both weeping because we thought to ourselves, Samson is a man, he is a human being just like any of us. 
Let me tell you something, parent. I'm not talking about you not being flawed. I'm not talking about you battling and I battling with faults and failures. I'm talking about just being a righteous, godly man. What does it look like in our day? He was not only a righteous man, he was a good man. The Bible says that when he found, she was found to be with child. Now let me ask you something. Every man. Let me tell you something. I, I, I love that woman. And as far as I know, she's never lied to me. She is truly a pure, godly, holy, good woman. I've told people, I've been married to her over 40 years. If you've got a problem with me, I understand I can be a horse's butt. I say, you got a problem with Sheila, it's your problem. She's just a good woman. And I can remember falling in love with her in college. I can remember seeing her for the first time in adolescent psychology. And it took me six months to get up enough nerve to ask her out for a date and begin to develop a relationship with her. And eventually, I want you to know something, we were engaged. I, she says, you don't even remember asking me about being engaged. No, I remember asking my dad, could I ask her? <laughs> but anyway... I can only imagine had she looked at me and said, Jeff, I want you to listen to me, and I know this is going to hurt you, and I know you're not going to believe it, and I know you're going to find it far-fetched, but I'm pregnant. And if I'm looking at her, and I've never had relations, sexual relationship with her at all, immediately I would be so angry, I probably would explode but if she looked at me and said, you don't understand. I'm pregnant. I've never been with a man. And I want you to know something. This child has been supernaturally conceived by God. I would say, yeah, you're right. I'm out of here. And we don't know that Joseph didn't do that. Because the Bible said that it was so difficult for him that he was trying to figure out how to put her away. Because see, the betrothal period was a year-long engagement that was so legally binding. If you broke the engagement, you had to go through divorce proceedings as if you were married. And it was a celibate time. You didn't flirt around. You didn't play around. You kept yourself pure. She was a virgin. So Joseph's trying to figure out, how do I? She's broken my heart, but how do I handle this? Because Levitical law could cause an adulterous woman, a fornicator, to be stoned. If you remember Jesus in John's gospel when he's faced with a woman called an adultery. Do you remember how he handled it? I wonder sometimes when Jesus was in that moment, you remember what the Bible said? Never wrote. He's sitting there writing in the dust. You know what most theologians say? He was writing the names of the oldest to the youngest that were gathered around in the circle holding their stones. He was saying, ye without sin cast the first stone, and he was writing all their names down. And then he looked at her and he smiled and said, where are your accusers? <laughs> she said, there are none. He said, neither do I condemn thee. Now go and sin no more. I don't know that Jesus for a moment didn't, his memory didn't go back to Mary. 
Let me ask you something. Do you think she ever shook the reputation? Do you ever think that she lived such a righteous, godly life that eventually the people in the community and the old gossips that found the busybodies, do you think they ever reached a point they said, well, you know, I think Mary was telling us the truth. No, that would kill her son. And let me tell you, if you don't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the immaculate conception, let me remind you of something, that any mom would have done whatever she had to do to save her child from that kind of death. No mom could endure that unless she knew the truth and she knew what the truth was and she could not deny that her child was a son of God. Wow, he was a good man. I love what McLaren says here. He says, the news that Mary told Joseph was blinding and startling as a lightning flash. And how the agony of perplexion as perplexity as to the right thing to do in such a cruel dilemma is hinted at at two clauses that pull in opposite directions. As a just man and her husband, Joseph owed it to righteousness and to himself not to ignore her condition. But as the man who was in love with her, how could he put her away quietly, privately, without her being hurt any farther? You know, I wrote this down. I've been counseling for about 40 years. Earned doctorate, spent my life doing it. It's amazing to me how stupid we men are. You know, men, you know the quickest way to win a woman's heart? Listen, look this way. Protect her. Just protect her. A woman loves to be protected, to feel protected. And even though his heart is breaking, he's gonna, he's still watching out for her because he loves her. Always remember a friend of mine, Jeffrey, you'll know uh, Ed. I'm just gonna say Ed, but you, you know Ed and you know what kind of guy he is. I remember a friend of mine, Ed, he was a pastor. He's been pastor of some pretty big churches in Mississippi. He said he pulled up in front of the church one day and he called the deacon, one of his leaders, and he said, he rolled down his window, he said, Said that he said, motion for him, come around, sit down on the other side. He came around, crawled in, sat down next to him in the front seat of his car. Car's running, sitting in front of the church. People are still leaving the church. And, the, and he, the pastor, has already pulled him. We're talking about a pretty prominent church. He pulls up there, motions for this guy to come out there and sit in the front seat with him. And then he turned and looked at him. He said, If you don't quit flirting my wife, if you don't quit flirting with my wife, and you don't quit, quit causing these problems that she seems to be having, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to whip your ASS right here in front of the church. Now, you may say, well, that's a little bit strong. But let me tell you something. He's been married to her now for about 60 years. You see, a woman wants to be protected. Joseph was a good man, and he would protect her. Well, he's not only a good man, he's a godly man. And when he's a godly man, he's a guided man. If you look at this, an angel appears to him, we'll close in a moment, and clears up the confusion, takes the hurt and the doubt and everything, and, and basically what the angel of the Lord says, what God is saying to Joseph. He's saying, Joseph, I know you're hurt, I know you're broken, but what she's telling you is the truth. Now I need you to rescue her and to protect her. 
Let me tell you, there's nothing... Girl, young ladies, wait. Please wait for a man to rescue you. Because every woman needs to be rescued in a day when guys are walking around like ravenous wolves and a day when, you know, people, immorality and unethical behavior and where women often are uh, treated in an unholy and ungodly way, when women are treated the way they are, they need some man to rescue them. You know, I raised two boys and two girls. Somebody messed with my daughters, they're as good as dead. <laughs> you may say, well, that doesn't sound very preachy. Well, I really don't care. When it came to my wife and my daughters, I, I left a gas station the other day. I'm in a, a store the other night because I had to hurry up and get away because the language coming out of the music of the vehicle was so obscene and obnoxious that I had to get away or I would have to have a confrontation and I just was too tired for it. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 18, we don't have time, but the Bible says that Herod is wanting to kill every baby two years of age and younger. And it says in verse 13, when they, gone, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. And he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Now, every man, every woman, look at the next part of that. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child, his mother, when? Do you see it? When? During the night and left for Egypt. Boy, I thought, man, that would have never worked in our day. Can you imagine a man waking his wife up and saying, Honey, I just had a dream. She said, Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream too. Now go back to sleep. No, you don't understand. I had a dream and God told us to get up and move right now. Pack the you. I'm going to go. Uh, you know, we've got to go right now. Uh, you're crazy. I'm not about to get up and pack little Jesus and go anywhere. Now go back to sleep. It's, it's the picture of hupotasso in the Greek. It's the picture of submission, coming under submission. And it's critical. It's critical. You know, I always hate to tell this story, but it's, only, it's the best story I got when it comes to blind submission, when it comes to submission. Sheila and I, we were in Zimbabwe, and uh, we, uh, where she was in a vehicle in front of me. I was in a vehicle behind her. We were separated by several vehicles in Zimbabwe, this third world country. You come to government, police barriers and blockades. Sometimes they're trying to bribe and get something out of you. And, and so we're at a dead stop, and I'm thinking, what's going on? So I step out of my vehicle, and I see these guys, AK-47s, and they've got my wife stopped there at the blockade. And they're just carrying on trying to intimidate her. Well, that went over like a lead balloon with me and back then I was probably about 190 pounds a lot healthier before I got sick and I was one to not be reckoned with and I got out of my vehicle I walked all the way up there you don't do that in a third world country and I said what seems to be the problem here I said mune mutambo headache which means do you have a problem mune mutambo headache 
Is there a problem here? And they told me to go get back in my vehicle. I said, no, she's not done anything wrong and you need to let her go. Sheila's sitting there going, you're getting ready to get killed. I'm going to watch you get gunned down right here at this block, blockade. And then I looked at her and I said, Sheila, drive. Sheila looks at me as if I'm crazy. I said, Sheila, drive, leave. She's still looking at me like I'm crazy. and She's trying to talk back to me in that moment. And I looked at her and I said, Sheila, it's the only time I've ever said it, I think, in my life and lived to tell about it. I said, shut up and go. Nyarara, uyai, indai, go now, Gino, now, go. She drove off and left. Joseph was a kind of man that his wife trusted him when he said, we've got to go now. I think when we look at this passage and we look at this particular individual, sometimes we, as men, would be challenged to say, I want to be that kind of man. I'm not. I'm still working on it. I want to be godly. I want to be good. And I want to be guided. Sometimes I'm not. But I want to be. I want to ask you something. I want you to stand. Go ahead and stand. You know the word Emmanuel. You know what it means? God with us. That's what it means. And as I told some Muslims one time a long time ago, in the Shona language of Africa, God put on the flesh of man. Mwadi, God, Akafeka, dressed Munyama in man's flesh and came into his creation to fix what only he could fix. And I'm telling you, if William and Kate were had an immaculate conception and British royalty announced this news, we might believe it, but 2,000 years ago for a 15-year-old virgin to make that kind of declaration, we would have probably never believed it. The reality is if the supernatural Christmas story is still a miracle. And you tell me, you tell me how a figure who's a common construction, common construction worker, walks out, of a, walks out of a business, never writes a book, no TV, no radio, no nothing, and in three and a half years changes the course of history. Hey, I may look like a fool to you. You may laugh and giggle and think there's no sense to this at all, but let me tell you something. I'm 63. I've been doing it over 40 years. I've traveled all over the world. I've seen more people die than probably anybody in this room. And I'm here to tell you this, that I've seen men and women come face to face with God seconds before they died. And some of them were rejoicing like our dear friend Karen who looked at us and said, Oh, Sheila, Jeff, 
Everything the Bible says, everything we've ever believed, everything that's ever you ever told us, it's all real, it's all true. And she came, comes out about of a coma and begins to lift up the Lord and thereafter dies. I've seen people sit up in their bed. Billy Graham, whose life was affected when his grandfather, when his grandmother, who had been comatose, sat up out of a coma, looked at the foot of the bed, said, well, looky here, there's Ben and there's Jesus. And Billy Graham said then his grandmother died. I'm here to tell you that there's another dimension, there's another life, and what you do in this life, as the man in Gladiator said, when he said, what we do in this life affects the next one. And that's true. Do you know Jesus? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you repented of your sin? Is he the Lord, the Savior, the Master of your life? Because if he's not, let me go in and let you in on something. You're never going to succeed true success. You'll stumble and flounder all through life. Why? Because you'll miss the meaning of it. It's Christ in you. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We praise you. Lord, I've given it my best, Lord. I've, I've, I've tried to preach your word in a way that would bring honor, just like my dear pastor Reggie has done over these last several weeks. But Lord, it comes down to this. It comes down to whether we've ever looked back over our life, repented of our sin, and given our faith and our trust over to Jesus Christ. And if we've not done that, then Lord, we are hopelessly and helplessly lost. This is a hard world to preach now. And it's getting harder. The Bible said that Jesus said when he returned, he said, would he even find faith? Congregations are becoming much more harder, more difficult. People are more colder, more insensitive. Sometimes there's not even common respect any longer. But Lord, I've done my best. And people have a decision to make and it's between them and you. I pray they make the right one. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.